Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 79th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's always ready to do battle in the arena. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product, with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey guys, glad to be here. Looking forward to episode 79 and all of our uh, extremely entertaining and valuable information that we're going to share with you. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Hey Travis, what's on the agenda this week? Well, James, this week we have a show in four parts. Uh, segment one is our top movers. We'll talk about the cards that have increased in price the most recently. Segment two we'll talk is uh, cards to watch. We'll talk about cards that we think may rise in price. Segment three is our metagame we can review. We'll be discussing Pro Tour Kyoto uh, or Pro Tour Ramunap Red, as it is uh, otherwise known. And segment four, our topic of the week, is a mystery topic. We don't know what we're going to do until we get there. So stay with us. It'll be a wild ride. Let's start off uh, segment one, our top movers. Our first card of the week is Monovortex from the Dark. Um, nobody knows what this does because it was printed in the dark and nobody likes to read cards from the dark, but it's a uh, and a blue enchantment that when you cast it, you have to sack a land and then every upkeep, every each person's upkeep, they have to sack a land. So it's really color pie breaking land sacrifice very odd it's on the reserve list jumped from five dollars to about 11 this week for a little double up uh i assume this is just a reserve list spec i can't imagine that it uh, suddenly showed up somewhere else no people in the mtg finance community have decided that in lieu of not having better ideas they're just going to keep targeting everything on the reserve list and hope that they can unload it later um I'm not participating in that process this deep in the pool because I think a lot of these cards have extremely shallow demand. So if you're holding on to a few copies of them that you pick up at five, maybe you unload them at 15 over the course of a few years. But there are so much, so many better places to flip the money faster. Uh, I completely agree. Uh, what's our next card, James? So a card that moved for a reason. Um, and the only card that I called out uh, after the podcast, um, in my articles for the Pro Tour, early on it became pretty clear this was going to be the thing that uh, that jumped when everything else was relatively flat last weekend. Hazaret the Fervent, the Red God that was fairly uh, broadly uh, uh, maligned as it was first revealed, um, moved from about $6 to 16 for about 140% gain because Standard Burn completely dominated this tournament, as it has done so many times in the past uh, when... Uh, formats were in their their youngest days. Um, Pretty interesting to me here that uh, Red was able to dominate even when they moved the Pro Pro Tour back for the first time like a month uh, after it would normally be. Yeah, you would think that Red is probably stronger because it happens so quickly it's hard to get any testing in. Um, But given if you figure that out in week one and then you have a couple weeks to try and crack it that you can eventually overcome it. Um, 
but it looks like that's not the case. And, you know, uh, you talk, hear some of the other t- pros on Twitter talking to have been playing standard for a long time about how, um, you know, you can build the deck to beat Ramanop Red, but building that deck to not lose to every other person in the room is going to be quite challenging. So uh, I, it seems unlikely we're going to end up with a dead standard where it's just Red is unbeatable, but it's always possible. In any case, the money on this is long gone. Please stay far away from all of these cards and you will not make money on them. It's already a race to the bottom. If you got in at five or six when I was calling it like overnight on Thursday, um, and you got them, uh, you, you were smart enough to post them before you even received your, your the package you ordered, then you probably got to unload some for, you know, five to $10 a copy. So good on you. But I, you know, standard still feels like a lame duck to me. It's not where I want to be parking money for very long. Um, many of the key cards in the format are about to get tossed out in a couple of months. Um, everybody's going on vacation in August into the long weekend series. So, um, you know, get out on Hazret, stay clear of standard and let's see what happens in the fall. Yep, this is a uh, a interesting dynamic here because we're not seeing a lot of cards come through that really made me think they're going to break out in the fall. Um, you know, I try and keep an eye out for those types of cards like, ooh, okay, this guy like didn't do that well. It was only one of or whatever, but this one card from a card set that's not rotating really looks great on camera or seemed to carry this deck, which means I'm going to focus on it in the fall. Rather, it's been like, wow, this just got crushed by these red decks and there wasn't anything else to look at really as being interesting. You know, the only other decks that succeeded were like zombies and, uh, and like some energy builds type of thing, which um, the energy builds, I guess, aren't rotating, but like zombies is the vehicles decks are losing Gideon. So uh, it's it's anyone's game as what's going to look like in October at this point. You're really going to have to have your ear to the ground to figure out what's going to be good. Yeah, we'll talk about it more in, in the couple segments from now. Next oh, on yeah, the list. I suppose we shouldn't uh, <laughs> shouldn't spend the entire segment one talking about our segment three. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, next on the list, we have Anaba Spirit Crafter. This is from Homelands. It's the uh, demi lord for Minotaurs that uh, is apparently on the reserved list and gives Minotaurs plus one plus zero for a measly four mana. And if that sounds underwhelming, it's because it is. Um, and I think that even if you had these lying around in your bulk boxes, you're probably going to have trouble unloading them at $4. I don't know who's even building Minotaur Tribal for EDH, which is the only reasonable place for this to see some demand. I guess casual Minotaur decks as well. Um, and you better hope it's casual Minotaur decks because that's the only way you're going to sell four ofs um, and make any money on this otherwise terrible spec. Yeah, this is awful. And I don't know who's buying it, but they're dumb and I hate them. Uh, next up, I'm going to do, I'm going to bang out three at once here. We have Bomat Courier from 75 cents to $2, Falcon Wrath Gorger from a dollar to 275 or three, and Earthshaker Kenra from three to nine, um, for about 150 to 200%. Those are all on the back of the standard burn deck. Um, all roughly in that same, just about triple up range, uh, all also in that range of, even if you were holding them, I'm not sure that you actually made any money after overhead shipping, all that type of thing. Earthshaker Kenra maybe was your best bet. Um, but even now that's down to like three fifty or $4 and you probably paid like 75 cents a copy. So whatever, if you have any of this stuff laying around your best bet absolutely is to try and trade it away, show up at your local store with these front and center in your binder and dump them to anyone for anything. 
Or just play the red deck in your weak local metagame and win a bunch of stuff. That might even be your best EV. Yeah, right? It's <laughs> not often that playing Magic is the best EV, but that actually might be the case. <laughs> yeah. I, it's a little odd to me that Kenra was the one that popped the most. I think it was probably because it was the most underestimated. Um, but there's got to be uh, less Kenra around. I mean, more Kenra around than there is Falconrath Gorger, for instance. I feel like those numbers should have been inversed. In the end, I don't care. Like this, this deck uh, probably has a home in the fall as well. It doesn't lose too, too much that can't be replaced relatively easily. Can, uh, assuming that they keep pushing aggressive red cards, uh, come uh, Ixalan. So uh, you're probably relatively safe playing it for a few more months and then hoping that you can continue on if that's your style of thing. My guess is that um, Kenra jumped a little harder than Falconrath Gorger because Falconrath Gorger rotates, but. Yeah, uh, could be. Kenra doesn't. Yeah. Sure. So Zendikar Resurgent Foils from Oath of the Gatewatch popped from $4 to 14 for about 250% gain. Um, this was a card that's uh, been on many of our radars for a while because it was picking up a lot of steam in EDH as a staple. Um, I've got a foil Korean one sitting on my desk that I will be trying to greedily unload on eBay over the next few months and that I popped out of a box, which is... Yet another anecdote that demonstrates why you should be buying foreign boxes of standard product um, the, when they're exactly the same price as English. There's just no downside, really. Well, yeah, I suppose if it's the exact same price. Um, next up is Village Messenger. Oh, man, this is another boring one. Village Messenger from Shadows of Innistrad, 50 cents to $2. It was in the standard burn deck. Uh, again, nothing to see here, really. Same story as the other ones. I'm just going to do another one. Oh man, this one's boring too. Circle of Protection Green foils from Eighth Edition jumped from a dollar to like four fifty. Um, I have we hit the full set yet? I don't think we have. We've done red, we've done black. Uh, this is Circle of Protection Green, so I guess in a couple of weeks we'll do Circle of Protection Blue, and then we'll probably finish off on white. I think. Um, I think. Somebody- I think we've actually touched on green, blue, black. Uh, I think we've missed red and white, and it's been no, from seven. No way we missed red. Red would have been the first one. Yeah, I don't remember seeing it pop. It may have already been high and higher than the rest, um, and they were catching up. We'll have to do a little research. But this is just, I, I have the distinct feeling this is somebody retargeting these cards. Like, yeah, sure, there's some popper demand for these and maybe some cube, occasionally some casual, but it just doesn't add up to these, like, getting ba- getting spiked and then falling back to demand pricing and then getting spiked again over and over and over again this is somebody who took it upon themselves to buy 10 copies one day and just can't let it go and they keep buying whatever freshly underpriced quote-unquote underpriced copies pop back onto tcg player you just stay well clear of this you post whatever copies you've got up on ebay um at the lowest price that anybody's selling them for and you hope that they go out the door and it's going to be the least exciting thing you do all week yeah, yeah, it could be copycat type of thing too, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Neither here nor there. Uh, what's next? Wall of Blood Foils from Mirrodin. This is a card that everybody's always trying to break, either with Death Shadow or with any number of different weird combos where having uh, reducing your life infinitely um, can somehow be transmuted into a win. Um, there's at least three or four combos uh, that I've seen uh, over the last year or two um, that work with this card. None of them ever get anywhere. Um, I don't believe that these foils will be able to hold this tier. They're probably going to fall back into the 6 to $8 range. Um, even if somebody's been streaming one of these decks recently, it doesn't mean it's going to show up at any major modern events. And modern doesn't have a whole lot of uh, fantastic events in the very near future anyway. So I think you unload these for whatever you can and move on. James, Star City... 
Oh, Syracuse Modern Open starts tomorrow, buddy. It's a major event. <laughs> how, how, how many people are do you think are expected at that event? Uh, one less than there was two hours ago because I've decided not to go. But um, <laughs> probably like 400, probably 500. 500. Yeah, sounds mm-hmm. about right. That's um, an okay-sized event, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, Syracuse is not, I would not consider a particularly attractive destination. Yeah. So. And, and something tells me that Wall of Blood will not be featured at that event. I know. Wouldn't expect so. Uh, last card of the week, uh, Ramunap Ruins. The foil copies from Hour of Devastation jumped from a dollar to almost seven for a pretty big jump percentage-wise. Again, part of the standard burn deck. Again, boring. Doesn't matter. Uh, if you haven't sold them, you won't sell them. So there you go. You know, I, I, the, hmm? I do have an outside curiosity as to whether this card is playable as a one or a two of in Modern Burn. I mean, it's four and, and tap to get the two points of damage through right which is uh, yeah. more Sounds lands right. more lands than burn really ever wants to have in play but if they flood and they're facing counter spells or something that prevents them from dealing red damage this does potentially help yeah it i guess you have to look at it as it it's not great but it's extremely low opportunity cost to play the toss the set of these in um you know, it doesn't let you play Eidolon on the Great Rebel on turn two, I guess. Uh, but yeah, being able to kill like core firewalkers or whatever, um, burnt, burnt and forge tenders for free, uh, get the last, you know, get the last two points in behind a counter spell. All, all decent, all decent. Um, you know, if you're playing the mono red burn, you could probably play a couple copies. Ah, so you, you may be making the same mistake I made. This doesn't come into play tapped. You pay a life to make the mana, but you can still tap it anytime you want. Uh, I say that it doesn't cast Eidolon in turn two because Eidolon's double red. Doesn't yeah. this? This makes oh, this red as red. Yeah, this makes red if you pay a life. Oh, I was just thinking it was colorless. Okay, well, yeah, never mind then. It's yeah. even better. As... So it seems all right, right? But we'd be a lot more excited if the foils were a dollar than they when they're at seven dollars because of standard demand <laughs> interfering with their potential as a modern spec. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. and and really, uh, what are the odds that it's going to overtake modern in a major way? Probably pretty low. Yeah. yeah. Right, if this like, if this was a mythic, we could talk. But as an uncommon, no, I'm I'm done. Agreed. Not a lot. Uh, not a lot of interesting stuff going on in our weekly movers. There, a lot of cards. Nothing too interesting. Um, okay, let's move on here. Segment to our cards to watch. James, what have you got for me? So this week, I want to drive home a point we've t- touched on a couple of times about how originality is not as important as making smart picks. Um, you know, it's there's there's always pressure in the MTG Finance content community to be coming up with fresh ideas, but I think there's a lot more value in using you know revisiting the best ideas, especially if um, the cards are still uh, great targets. If we tell you to buy something at ten and next week it's twenty five, and we keep ha- you know pushing you at it when it's twenty five, then we're not doing our job because you've probably missed the boat and we're pointing you in the wrong direction. But if a card was great at ten and now it's at eight and the inventory is even lower. <laughs> then uh, there's some stuff you should probably look at again. So I went back over my picks from the last 15, 16 weeks or so and tried to pick out a few that I think that uh, people have been sleeping on and didn't take the advice the first time. Um, starting off with Traverse the Ulvenwald foils. Uh, still a mid to long-term pick, still confidence level about eight. 
Um, you know, it's going to rotate, so I don't think you need to be in a huge rush here because the Death Shadow decks have pivoted from Jund into Grixis pretty confidently. Um, so I have a feeling you're, you might get a shot at these in the like $5 to $6 range come the fall, but I think this is a future $15 to $20 foil in, in Modern. This is a tutor for one green mana that can go get any creature. And whether Modern survives as a format for another five years or gets replaced by something like Frontier, um, I can't see a future where Traverse doesn't end up being uh, an important card. And it's got some play in Legacy and or Vintage, um, and certainly in Cubes and in Casual, um, again, because it's a tutor. Right. I, Monica Influence is a powerful card. Um, you know, Delirium is going to be one of those things that it's going to get easier and easier in old formats, especially if they have brand new card types. Uh, which would trigger all these delirium cards to be worth another look. It's it is you're right. It's a it's a one mana green tutor. Um, I, I I'm on board. I, I really I don't have I don't too much to say. It seems like a solid choice. Um, that's going to keep seeing play over and over again, and eventually uh, there will be a deck where it really matters, um, and you'll see a lot more action on it pretty fast. You might want to say that do that whole segment again. You started off with mana confluence is a powerful card. Because <laughs> I was looking at the Monic Confluence in my hand. <clears throat> Traverse of Ulenvald is, yeah, I mean, I can't really get away from that. It's a one mana green tutor um, that, you know, Delirium is easier to turn on the further back you go and the longer you wait because, you you, you know, the card pool is is more flexible. And, you know, they could always add another card type, which is not, wouldn't be that surprising, uh, which would turn on these Delirium cards even more. But even without all of that, it's a it's a it's a powerful effect and we've already seen it slip into modern in a few places here and there. And one of these days we're going to see a deck where it really matters to the build and uh, you know, it'll probably take off. So $8 for a foil um, foil copies of this seem, seem pretty solid. And you know, when $20 is a very reasonable uh, place to take off to. All right. So what's your first pick this week? Um, well, you know, I was thinking about playing mill this week at uh, star city and Went to look up Frain Sanity to uh, just to check the Oracle text and find out found out the card is like two dollars, which kind of took me back because I figured it would st- still be basically bulk um, before it turned up, but it's already at two dollars and doesn't seem like it's probably going to go down anytime soon. Casuals are eating this card up. It's the best mill card printed in a very long while, um, and makes all your other mill cards very good. It seems like the type of card where if you want to play mill, uh, I can't see those types of guys getting away from this effect. D- doubling mill and being a one-shot combo with Traumatize is very appealing to that type of player, I think. So I, I like these if you can score them at like $2 in trade. Um, you know, I'm not rushing out to buy a stack of them at $2 myself. Uh, but if you can get them cheaper in trade or whatever, or, or just in trade in general, if they start to slip down towards a dollar range, I think this is going to be a pretty comfortable, slow gainer, um, and could climb up to the five, six, seven dollar range. So, you know, I'm not looking for an explosion on this one or anything like that, but I do think it's going to be a pretty solid gainer over time. Like all of these mill cards are, um, and for reference, archive traps, like $7 right now. I think we can both agree. This is at least a two, three year hold though, right? Oh, yeah, this is not going to be an overnight type of thing. This is definitely a, if you have them, just kind of stash them and forget that you have them. I mean, I really want this card near a dollar. At a dollar, I'll put a hundred in on it um, and just wait. But at 250 to $3, because there was, you know, Saffron posted the a deck with this online the other day that got tons of hits. 
um, which is probably driving up the price and eating some inventory. I want to I want to let all that hype fade and get to a point where it's doing nothing in standard. Um, at which point you should be able to get in on a bunch of copies cheaper. Sure, um, I think that's possible. Although it is worth noting that I checked the price of this last night, and his deck tech for for the Fray Insanity mill deck went up today. So I think it was two dollars before he released the video the deck tech on it. I don't know. I can't, I can't be positive about the timeline, but that's how I encountered it. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. I don't, it's not like a, it's not a, oh my God, this is going to go off tomorrow. It's just a, you know, here's one of those less sexy long-term sleeper picks. Well, the, and this is a good segue into my next pick, which is the third time I've mentioned this. And yet the opportunity still exists. You can get conspiracy two boxes. The first time I said you could get them at 90. Then I said you could get them at 85. Now you can get them at $75. And again, the, EV at TCG near mint low is over 90 for these boxes. They have a pile of good cards in them that are important, um, especially in EDH circles. Um, there's a bunch of stuff in here that people are going to want over time, all the way back to Legacy. We've got Leovold, Emissary of Trest, Show and Tell, Sanctum Prelate, Deretti, Ingenious Iconoclast, Expropriate, Recruiter of the Guard, Berserk, Salvala, Kaya, Birds of Paradise, Inquisition of Kozilek, Platinum Angel, etc., etc., etc. There are 20 or 30 good cards in this set. Um, and yet, you, boxes have not moved through distribution. They're, they are languishing, and as a result, they are available in bulk at less than $75 a box. This is still one of the best things you can do with your money right now. And if you want to test the waters of cracking a case of something and trying to sell it through uh, your sales channels, this is this is where you want to be. That is uh, getting to be a pretty dramatic difference in terms of what you're paying versus the value of the box, especially since you can always uh, get lucky and spike like a foil. Ex- what is it? Expropriate and leave. they're both in here, right? Yeah. So like... If you if you land those die rolls right, you make out real well. Yeah, I and I popped a few a couple months ago and did very very well and uh, nearly doubled my money on the boxes and got a foil expropriate that covered most of a box and got a couple of Leovolds and you're not always going to open them. There's definitely some variants here and you can get blown out just like with any box that that uh, you know has rarity associated with it, but. Um, you could also just sit on them for a while because eventually when the supply dries up, these you know, have to be 125 to $150 boxes. And they should be, even if you don't want to pay for shipping costs online, one of my little tricks with sealed product is once it gets tasty and people are actually after it, post it in a local Facebook forum and try to trade it out into a card that you can ship much more cheaply. Yeah, that works too. I uh, So there you go. Pick up Conspiracy 2 boxes, uh, preferably ones with foil Leovolds or expropriates in them. Um, my second pick this week is Razakath. Uh, Razakath, uh, something or other from Hour of Devastation. This is the second Demon Lord, Razakath the Foul Blooded, second Demon Lord coming after Gristlebrand. Gristlebrand, of course, we are all familiar with. Um, mainstay in Legacy and Modern, currently banned in EDH. Uh, play, explain Vintage 2, I believe, Cubes, all that type of stuff. Really, um, when you're talking about the biggest, baddest creatures in Magic, the first name on the list is Emrakul, and the second name on the list is Gristlebrand. Razakith is going to be disgusting in Commander. I have not played with him. I'm sure other peoples can uh, will arrive at that conclusion. Um 
you know, even if your opponents have a removal spell, immediately you can still double and triple Demonic Tutor. Don't forget that Demonic Tutor is like a $30 card, and people love that effect. So it's not like this is some dinky garbage uh, sta uh, stapled to Razakath. Now, there's a big caveat here in that I think there's a possibility he will get banned. I don't know for sure. Obviously, none of us know. He does seem a little less obnoxious than Gristlebrand because you can't just draw two new hands instantly. Um, the, the tutoring is extremely powerful, which will make him a great include for every black deck, but he may not be like broken card as a book you know he might just be very very good card but as long as he doesn't get banned in edh he is absolutely on his way to 15 dollars uh and you can grab copies for four bucks right now um i do not think it took gristle brand that long to really start climbing up and Razakath might be a little longer on the upswing because gristle brand very quickly slotted into a lot of combo decks um or Gristlebrand quickly slot into the combo decks. Razakath will not. I don't think you're going to see like people through the breach Razakath. Um, but at the same time, there's going to be strong, consistent EDH demand on this guy for forever. And I mean, really, like he fits into all of the good commanders too. I mean, if you're playing Marin, you're absolutely playing Razakath. And Marin is like, what, the second or third most built commander, period. So good guy. Yeah, I mean, he works nice with reanimation themes. He works nice with token themes. Um, he's certainly nice in Calia, <laughs> uh, where you can put him in for free. Uh, the, the card is strong. How do you feel about the foils at $20, given that there's way less inventory but a high multiplier? Though, so I did, I did look at those. They're interesting. I guess my concern is I feel like I am going to get blown out even harder if it gets banned. Like, that's probably my biggest concern. Um, but $20 is still pretty cheap for a card that could end up at like $60 almost overnight. So if you think that it will get banned, but it will take a while, it might still be worth going after the foils because there are 14 sellers on TCG player. It doesn't look like there are more than 30 or 40 copies. Um, they, you know, it caps at 25, but would not take too much for that to get cleaned out. Yeah, I mean, if you spend five or six hundred dollars, you can probably mop up most of the foil copies in North America right now, um, and then you're only fighting against whatever trickles back in from you know Somerset being opened modestly uh, in advance of Ixalan. Yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, Hour of Devastation is looking to probably be a fairly underopened set. If these foils were under ten, I'd already be buying them. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> I wouldn't have talked about it at ten. <laughs> yeah. At, at 20, eh, think about it. The the EDH demand, uh, I think, pattern is going to be clear. Um, and hopefully it's uh, not so good that it gets banned. Um, but it's very unlikely to see a reprint for minimum four to five years. So if it doesn't get banned and it picks up steam in EDH and these foils end up being, what, 40, 50 bucks? Uh, I, I could see 60 actually. I don't think that, I don't think that's un, unreachable. A foil EDH mythic. I mean, considering that, uh, Zendikar resurgent foils, um, are on our list this week at sitting around $15. So recent foil rare 15 mythic could hold anywhere between probably 30 and 60. And the, the nice thing here is it's not a one deck pony, right? Like, uh, my next spec is. 
So let's jump in on that. Um, one of the other things that I recommended some weeks back um, that I still think is good, um, although there are a lot less copies around at this price now, um, Haven of the Spirit Dragon foils uh, auto-include land almost certainly in the Dragon EDH deck that's coming out. The Dragon deck is five color. Um, this is absolutely going to be in everybody's deck. Anybody that wants to bling out their deck is going to want a foil copy of Haven of the Spirit Dragon, and you can still get some of those around five or six bucks, and I think it's going to end up a 15 or $20 card, assuming that anyone builds these dragon decks. Sure. I don't, and that's a very reasonable choice right there. I mean, dragons are a perennial casual favorite, and, uh, that card, you know, it was from the cons era. So there's a fair bit of them on the market, but that's going to, you know, it's not, there's a fair bit of cons, but it doesn't look like there's a lot of Haven and that's going to get drained, especially as people keep going back to that well over and over again. Yeah. I mean, if we're looking at the foils on TCG player, you've got like a handful of copies under eight bucks and then it jumps up into that 10 to 15 range. When I see a really steep curve like that across a relatively low number of sellers. That's one of the cues I look for to something that's going to jump off. Okay. I think that's a good choice for sure. All right. We're going to move on to segment three, our metagame week in review. So Pro Tour Hour of Devastation was this past weekend or otherwise Pro Tour Ramanap Red. Um, this was just ridiculous. There was, I mean, I feel like there's not really a lot to talk about here. Like the top eight was what is that? Six out of eight decks were red. Um, the best deck list, which is usually best decks, which are standard cards, standard decks that did very well, but didn't necessarily put their piles into the top eight. So these are guys who went like, who went, you know, undefeated in standard, but bombed their drafts or whatever. Um, that's also saturated with red. I mean, it's just red up and down the board. So there's, Usually I try and find some interesting decks or some standouts some stuff that might explode after the fact, but there's just, there's just nothing here, man. It is just all red, which, which I have to admit is it's, it's kind of frustrating that I'm having difficulty finding direction for what to look towards in October and kind of like what might be some, some good flips for then. But the, the, the flip side of that is that, uh, it's exciting, right? Like it's really cool. Cause that means this fall is going to be completely different and open. And it's really going to something, at least one or two cards are going to pop really hard. And if you can get ahead of those they are going to be worth your while. Yeah, it was an interesting pro tour. It was the first time I decided not to do round by round coverage because I had some vacation commitments that I had to live up to while still providing the coverage. And it turned out that that was just fine because by halfway through Thursday night, North American time, it was already obvious that um, red was the deck of the tournament. Um, all the red cards that uh, hadn't spiked already were going to see modest bumps. That Hazrat the Fervent was the only one that was really going to matter as the only like relevant mythic. Um, and that there was going to be smatterings of zombies and smatterings of green-black, but that neither of those uh, were decks that uh, pro teams were able to find configurations for that um, could you know, knock red decks out of day two, for instance. You know, sometimes you see a really dominant deck on day one, but people have next leveled that deck, and when they come face-to-face with the, you know, the the arrows that were aimed at the bullseye on their back, they, you know, they, they failed to make top eight. That was not the case here. Red 
with Hazaret because of the fact that only, you know, really Grasp of Darkness and a couple of other cards can ever get rid of that god once it hits the table. Gives Red the Reach in combination with Ramantep Ruins um, that it sometimes lacks when it's doing well in a format. Um, you know, you've got an uncounterable um, form of damage that can only really be stopped by, I guess, Dissipate's trigger counter. Um, and then you've got this god that's indestructible that when it hits the table, you just start anything, any dead draws you have are probably going to put the game away anyway, because she can fling them at you for two, two, uh, two damage a piece. Um, and that just made the deck uh, consistent in a way that aggro decks often are not. Um, so as you were saying, like you go look at the the lists that you know disregarding the limited play and look at even decks that went you know twenty four to twenty six points, which were like eight and two decks, eight one and one, or eight zero two. There's some black red aggro, some black green aggro, uh, a whole bunch more red, um, and then a team or energy build here or there. Um, but again, nothing, no really super interesting new archetype. None of the stuff that was getting streamed or talked about on Magic Online, none of the God Pharaoh's gift decks that were using a bunch of interesting white cards um, were, were, you know, able to turn the corner and find their way, A, into the hands of enough players, and B, do well when they did. They had relatively poor conversion rates. And I think that part of the blame for that has to be hung on a braid, right? The, the two-mana instant red spell that uh, was clearly set out there as a limiter on the success of the Kaladesh block cards for this portion of the year um, because it can destroy an artifact or kill a creature. Really sets you up well against decks like Mardu Vehicles and and um, anybody that wants to combo off with artifact cards because if, you know, Teamer Energy drops uh, Servant of the Codruid that you need to get rid of early in the game, boom, you can get rid of that. If somebody manages to get a God Pharaoh's Gift in play, boom, you can get rid of that. Like, it, the flexibility that that provides in combination with Hazaret and the Ruins is just so much more utility than aggro decks are used to having. He is, and I, you know, I made a saw LSV make a comment on Twitter that, like, they didn't even bother to test the games between... They didn't bother to test games where one person drew Hazra and one person didn't because it was just such a blowout. Like those games were interesting. It was only interesting when nobody did, or maybe both of them did. But yeah, yeah, heads up, it was it was pointless. Which you know, yeah, kind of sets me up to wonder, you know, if some of the other gods are underappreciated at the moment. Um, you know, they seem like like ripe territory for uh, for the fall because uh, you know, are they are they all indestructible? Now I forgot. Let's yep, see. Let's yep, see. Yep, yep. On to... Yeah, they're all indestructible. Yeah, so that might be uh that might be worth thinking about there that that element of this has made them very attra- made Hazard very attractive. Um and it was just a nightmare to get off the board. So, uh certainly definitely definitely worth keeping an eye on. You know, Bantu is like $2 and change at this point. Uh and you know, just keep an eye on Sam Black, maybe he'll crack that one. <laughs> yeah, there there was a uh Cryptolith right deck that's that did decently um that i think was maybe six and four or something like that i think it showed up in uh the report that saffron all filed on their site black green right yeah went seven and three in the hands of elias uh elias clocker this was running blister pod loam dryad carrier thrall uh, Dustwash Recruiter, Zillaport Cutthroat, so all that stuff. And it runs a, one copy of Bantu the Glorified as a sack outlet, but just one. Um, 
So, I mean, that's not a really exciting place to be with Bantu. I don't think Kefnet is likely to take off unless a really good control build shows up in the fall. Um, and Blue would need a real revitalization in, uh, in the next set to keep up because, man, they're just non-existent at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, blue-black Godfaro's gift. I think Godfaro's gift still has a shot. Um, it doesn't really lose much come the fall. Um, you know, it's got all of the cycling cards potentially. There's the Marionette Master uh, version that can do a pile of damage all at once and just combo people right out. Um, it's mostly built on cards from the fall from the last year, so it's probably something to watch. And if those cards slide back now that they haven't really performed at the Pro Tour, and you believe that Standard is going to become further rejuvenated in the fall, that might be a place to be. Um, I think at this point, like Kozilek's re- return is probably as uh, ripe as it's ever going to get. If you're holding a bunch of copies of that, you definitely want to get out. I mean, that card's rotating, um, and it's had its chance to make a mark multiple times uh, at its current price point. I think you just need to exit and unload for sure. I mean, I th- you think you can only get like 4 or $5 for it now, but you definitely don't want to get caught holding them. Yeah, good luck. I mean, I would take, you know... If your store is giving you two, three bucks for them, even two bucks is probably worth taking it because it's going to, I think, bulk after that. It's just not seeing play anywhere else. Um, a, a spec we never called out, as far as I know, is Chandra Torch of Defiance when she was sitting around at like, uh, you know, sub 20, 18 to 20 dollars or whatever in the very early portions of the year when I was mostly focused on buying masterpieces in Europe. But she's up over, you know, 30 to 35 now on the back of being used in red. So I think that's probably a good selling point if you're holding any copies of that that you aren't using. Yeah, anytime a standard card crests $30, it is just an auto sell. I have been trying to keep an eye on her for a while now because I am like, come on, just. Everybody just forget about her for a couple months so I can score them for $13, $14. But she just would not give up any ground. Uh, so, yeah, she, she's definitely a sell. I was hoping that she wasn't going to have that big of a pro tour. Uh, but no such luck there, it would seem. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the other utility cards in the red deck that helped them put games away. So, right. the the uh, yeah, I mean, the pro tour was less interesting than I thought people were hoping for. And it's just... it. It's weird, right? Like, this isn't a super important portion of the standard season because it's, you know, the the end of summer and what have you, and we're heading into Ixalan. But if we got to Ixalan and say the red deck was still doing really well, then we're right back where we started. So I'm very curious to see where this where this ends up, because if they have yet another deck this year that does really well, and we know that they've got that playtest team that they set up that Paul Cheon and a bunch of other people have been brought into, um, but their work is not going to yield results for some number of months, maybe even a year, right? Because they're 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 now working on stuff that comes out like a year and a half or two years from now. Um, yeah, Paul, I mean, Paul just moved to Seattle like a week or two ago. So they are working on sets at this on standards at this point that we don't even know the names of. And and, and that's also an unproven concept, right? We, there's, it's not even clear that that playtest team internally will be able to get to the same metagames that the you know full attention of the pros and the the GP circuit and the Star City Games uh, tournaments and the tournaments of Japan and so forth um, are going to get to. Um, it's not like they've never done playtesting inside Wizards before. They're now formalizing and and putting more resources into the, this aspect of their development chain, but. You know, it remains to be seen whether that's even going to guarantee better standard formats. That, that that's the hope, um, but it's a real problem, and and I hope they solve it. It's it's better for everybody if if they do. Um, as little as I have, or you know, we don't need standard finance uh, to make money, but we certainly need Magic to be healthy <laughs> to make money. And part of Magic being healthy is having a st- strong standard, whether people realize that or not. 
Yeah, I would. I don't want standard to suffer at all. I would love a good standard because that just gets a lot more people playing, a lot more activity. People, they're showing up for standard. They're more likely to show up for modern and trade for those types of cards. It's just just better for the game overall. So yeah, you know, I know you and I can sometimes be a little sour about Wizards and their outlook and all that type of thing, but we have we also have a vested interest in in them succeeding. It is uh, it is only out of concern that we say the things that we do, right? <laughs> well, I mean, heading into this Pro Tour, the general consensus was Standard had been fixed and was very skill testing and very interesting and, and represented a good play pattern. Um, I'm not sure how people are feeling heading out of the Pro Tour and how easily the metagame will adapt to the red decks and, and the fact that aggro decks in general were so dominant, because it wasn't just red. It was aggro decks as an archetype that dominated this tournament, whether it was green, black, constrictor, whether it was mono black zombies, there wasn't, it didn't seem like control had the tools to address all of the, the different angles in the format. And I think it's partially the combination of artifact combo potential enablers, um, vehicles being present in the format and a bunch of strong planeswalkers that has made it so hard for control. Um, and, you know, Hour of Devastation, the card was clearly uh, included as a way of potentially sweeping all that stuff away. And yet, because it's on five mana and not four, has not really had the desired impact. And we also haven't seen, you know, a card like Bantu's Last Reckoning step up to try to shore up uh, especially fast starts. Um, some decks were running a copy or two, um, but I'm curious as to whether that will be one of the pieces of the puzzle uh, needed to keep aggro in check. It is kind of surprising that Hour of Devastation wasn't good enough um, that, you know, even still that that couldn't put it over. Maybe now that they know better what they're aiming for, that they will uh, be able to build the that deck, the Hour of Devastation deck in order to beat Red. Um as opposed to before the Pro Tour, they might not have been sure, you know, like, okay, well, now we know what the percentage is. We can tweak the deck a little better to match what's in the metagame. So that seems reasonable, especially because, you know, at all of your other events, you know, you're not talking about Pro Tour caliber players all playing the mono red deck. The skill is going to be lower. People are going to miss points of damage. They're going to be behind by a turn, sometimes two, which is going to make the guys who show up with, you know, Hour of Devastation is going to land on time basically more regularly than it would have otherwise. Um, so, you know, if you, if they start aiming for that, maybe there is room for that deck to show up. So it'd be kind of, it'd be kind of funny if we end up with a standard format that's like burn and ramp. That's a, it's an odd combination, but I suppose it's possible. All right. So moving on to our topic of the week, uh, we were going to talk, uh, about, uh, when to cut your losses, how to know when your spec has gone off the rails, um, and what to do about it. And we're also going to answer a few questions that people threw out at us on Twitter this week. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll start by kicking off some of the questions. Sure. So we had uh, somebody posted, what is the value, value you are trying to convey to others when you post pictures of your past purchases on MTG Finance? So I think this one is squarely aimed at my face, um, <laughs> since this is not something you really do. Well, it's definitely, so he's definitely asking based on what everybody does, because you aren't the only one that does it. You're just the one who does it out of the two of us. Uh, but a lot of people do this type of thing. And, and sometimes I kind of stare at a couple of these photos and wonder the same thing myself. Um, but what, you know, why don't you go ahead and, and inform people? Cause I, I, I do believe that there is a purpose for it. So I think that the assumption that people have sometimes is that it's some kind of ego trip, that it's a hum humble brag and you're, you're looking to get people to stroke you and go, oh my God, you're so smart. Look at what you did. Um, I can reassure, at least from my, my mindset that that's 0% what's going on. I mean, 
Um, I certainly engage in MTG Finance in a social way, producing content and doing this podcast and writing for MTG Price because making money on an island is super, super boring to me. Um, um, But it's not because I miss the validation. It's because the interplay of ideas makes the whole thing more social, more fun, right? Um, You know, we've had a lot of good talks that have uh, enriched our approach to MTG Finance and made each other money, um, which is, you know, going to when you have somebody that you can bulletproof your ideas off of, or if you have a community that will do the same for you, then, and that will also keep you in check, that will call you on your bullshit. You are, that feedback, both positive and negative is going to help refine um, your activity and, and help you get more efficient and make more money or save more money. Um, And you get that by putting the truth out there, whether it's bad or it's good. I mean, I've also shown off, um, you know, mistakes I've made along the way. It's not all, uh, humble brags, but the there are more humble brags than there are mistakes because of all you know all of the benefit that I have derived from participating in the community, the things that I've learned from other content creators, from other vendors, from all the back channeling and discussion that happens in private message on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, you know, the number of good ideas I have compared to the number of good ideas I borrow from other people is you know drastically in favor of the community support side. So, you know, part of it is demonstrating um, proof of concept, right? It's about showing people a consistent pattern of success that gives them a reason to give a shit what I have to say on Twitter. Um, if you see us make money, even if the opportunity that that is, that, that is related to is passed, um, even if you can't get in on that idea, maybe it makes you, you know, reconsider the things that we just told you on our most recent podcast that you should go by and think to yourself, well, hey, maybe I should give this more weight in my portfolio. Maybe I should, you know, actually think about throwing an extra hundred dollars into my play money account for this um, and see how it goes. Um, if you never see results, and and I'm especially suspicious of the people that are, you know, major members of this community that are involved in the creation of podcasts or content, but never seem to actually buy or sell anything. Um, and also the people that tell people to go out and buy stuff, but don't really disclose whether they have a vested interest in those things. So say, telling people to go out and buy, but not really saying how deep they've gone themselves that's where I start to raise huge red flags and question marks. I mean, I want transparency um, from other content creators and members of the community. I want to see how you're doing. And I, I think it's better for all of us if we can let go of our petty jealousies and so forth and just be happy for one another. I mean, the whole thing here is about making and saving money as a community, right? About being the sub community in Magic the Gathering that does all this stuff a little better than everybody else. And there's nothing wrong with getting a pat on your back from your comrades on that stuff. And as long as you're, you know, maintain a reasonable amount of humility. Well, you're, uh, you're, we're all happy and getting along and it's going to be great, uh, is laudable. It is probably a bridge too far, especially since there's money involved with me, which means there's egos involved, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, but a lot of what you say makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I don't, I don't share as much myself because, I'm, I prefer to opt to be a little more, I don't want to say discreet, but appear to be a little more humble with it. But I do think that there's definitely value in people sharing that type of information. It You definitely, I feel a little more vulnerable when I post that type of information, especially if I'm not positive that it's going to land. You know, it's easy to post the photo of the cards that I own after it spiked. 
Um, but it's much harder to post the cards and be like, hey, this is what I just bought. Uh, let's see where it goes because you're like, oh, damn, people are going to call me stupid or it's not going to go anywhere and I'm going to look dumb, whatever. Um, so, you know, you're, you're putting it out there and you're kind of saying like, this is the this is the reason why you can listen to me and trust me. And like, this is kind of the, the evidence for that. And I am also have become sort of frustrated with all of these people out there. Uh, I shouldn't say all these people. There are individuals who kind of are like, after a card spikes to go, oh yeah, I told you to buy that. Oh yeah, I told you to buy that one. Oh yeah, I told you to buy that one. But like, you never see those photos ahead of time. They never talk about what they bought. They never talk about what they did. So, you know, you don't, we don't need to post every single card we buy, but it is nice to see occasionally people putting that type of information out there ahead of the time, because then you get to the point where you're like, okay, well, you told us that you called 25 cards, uh, but did you actually buy any of them? Do you own any of these cards? Because just standing off on the sidelines and telling us you did, but not actually doing it doesn't mean anything because you're not going through the process of actually trying to get rid of them, um, which is the hard part, right? Like calling it ahead of time is actually easier than trying to get rid of the damn things after the fact. And one, one of the most common themes in MTG Finance content is a big list of cards and then kind of tepid explanations as to why this might or might not get there. This might not, might not get there, that one, this one, the other one. And then later when one of them hits, go, ah, yep, I, I told you to buy that one. Whereas like with my Pro Tour like lead-in coverage last week, yeah, I mentioned Hazard, but I also mentioned like eight other cards that did nothing. So, you know, my preview article wasn't worth much. The If you followed the next article that I did like 12 hours later where I said, listen, day one looks very red. Now you really want to be serious about Hazaret. Prioritize this. That was valuable if you, if you made the move because that card didn't actually start moving until like Sunday when, when it became very clear that it wasn't just day one. The conversion rates weren't the whole story. It was, in fact, going to fill up and, and be the dominant in the top eight. And then finally the card took off. And it wasn't just me raising that flag. Lots of people in the community did it. Everybody had a chance. And if you skipped out on it, then, that, then that's a choice you made. But, you know, one of the things that's important is relative priority, right? Like we might, I might show off a $3 EDH foil that I bought um, a moment's breath away from showing off a huge $5,000 package I got in from Europe. Those two tweets are not equally important. Unfortunately, Twitter doesn't let me prioritize your feed to, to give you a one to 10 rating as to whether you should give a shit about what I'm, what I'm spouting off about. Give but, it a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> well, I doubt it. We're talking about Twitter here, but I mean the, you know, the, that kind of filter were I able to offer to the community would probably assist in, in allaying uh, many of the concerns. Wow, did you hear that? Was that thunder in your neighborhood? Yeah, it was apparently thunder on top of my house. Holy crow. Great, I got to drive through that later tonight. <laughs> well, we're about two and a half hours east of Ohio, so. Well, I got to drive through Buffalo to get there. You do? Yep. Oh, and there's my dog on cue. Yeah, it's the only way people from Toronto can get to Ohio. Got to drive through Buffalo. The uh, All right, so... One of the people uh, asked us the best strategy to get out of dead bulk specs, which plays into the topic we already wanted to discuss this week, which was how to know when it's time to call it quits and move out on a spec. Um, so I, I know we were talking about this off camera and, and you had some kind of funny anecdotes to share about do as I say, not as I do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, yeah, that's that is the anecdote. Uh, you had mentioned that as a topic of conversation. I'm like, oh, that is a that is a tough one to discuss because I personally have had th this. I think is one of the most challenging co components of this hobby 
that I face. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm a relentless optimist or what, but I tend to look at that and go, ah, you know, it's easier to just stash it and hope that it will improve down the road. Um, for instance, I've got a couple from the vault, Grove of the Burn Willows, that that had spiked and jump up to like 90 or like $100, and I scooped them up at like 60 um, And by the time I had them in my hands, because it was like two weeks, and this was a long time ago, well, not a long time, like two years ago, by the time I had them in my hands, it was down to like 50 or 60 so I couldn't sell them and make a profit. And I just figured I'd catch like, you know, I'd wait a little bit longer, and then they just kept going. So now they're like 35 bucks, not even which is a pretty bummer, pretty big bummer. And I could sell them and lose like $30 a copy, but I'm like, mm, and it's, I'm like playing this game of like, do I think it's going to get reprinted? Uh, and am I going to get hammered again? Or do I uh, do I hold off and hope that Tron gets big or like that they start, using, you know, some other deck picks up Grover the Burn Willows and it rises again. I mean, I still have them. So clearly I've decided not to get rid of it. But I mean, if you can do this, if you can extract the emotion from it, which is what you're supposed to do, you basically, you look at the card and it should not matter what you paid. It should matter how much it's worth right now and what you think is going to happen to that card in the future. And if you own this card and you think it's going to go down or it's risky to hold, you should be selling it regardless of what you paid for it. Um, you know, this is all runs into that sunk cost fallacy and it's, uh, but it's difficult to separate yourself from, you know, and I don't, and I don't think that I'm the only one that bumps into that either. If you're a vendor, it's probably a lot easier for you to, to just flip stuff you missed on and not feel bad about it because you have such a higher volume and such a greater churn. But, you know, you know, if you're a small guy like me, that type of stuff really, it hurts the pocketbook and it also hurts the ego a little bit. Um, but, you know, also on the smaller stuff, I just dump them into a spec box. So if I paid like 50 cents or 75 cents for cards and I've got a stack of them like Druid Satchels, I think I found in Dusquatch, not Dusquatch Recruiter, uh, the old flip card from Innistrad that was supposed to shoot Delvers that Brian Kibler was really big on. Um, Daybreak Ranger, maybe like those I just dumped into my spec box instead of ever selling because they were never it was never worth getting rid of them. Like I wasn't going to get enough of a return on them for it to matter. So I just held on to them and hope that they would spike. Um, and that, that is, that is a completely valid strategy, by the way, if the cards value is low enough, uh, you're not getting burned as much. Um, Jason all recently was talking about how God, what was it? Intruder alarm. He specked on a while ago and completely missed and they got buried. Um, and he was underwater on them. And then this modern deck shows up and true alarm suddenly gets excited and he gets paid off. And I had it with what happened with protein Hulk. So like, I guess I would say on the bigger, more expensive stuff, you really, you should probably be able to bite the bullet and get rid of it. But on the smaller stuff, I'm comfortable just dumping it in my spec box and hoping for the best, I guess. Yeah. There's a few different factors to consider, right there. I think one of the most important is reprint risk. So how recently has been reprinted? How many total reprints? How many total copies are in the marketplace available at the lowest average price? Um, like TCG near mint low. How, how shallow is the curve between the first, the lowest price vendor and the highest price vendor? Um, and what sets are upcoming that look like they could reprint it? What's the name of the card like? Is it easy to print in any old site like set, like something like Thoughtseize or Inquisition? Um, or lightning bolt or shock, or is it? Does it have power level issues? Is it using keywording that's no longer used in the game um, that will relegate it to some kind of secondary product? Um, all of that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, 
when you're talking about like a hundred copies of a dollar card versus a hundred dollar card, I mean, first of all, you should be questioning why you're you're buying a hundred copies of a dollar card if you had a good spec that was a hundred dollars because you're just generating a colossal waste of efficiency for yourself. Um, unless you believe that the percentage return potential on the dollar card is extremely high. If you think it's going to hit $5 on buy less at some time in the next few years, then by all means, stock away $101 cards. You know, anybody who's in MGG Finance has some of those specs put away. But I can tell you as someone who you know run, has tried the whole spectrum of opportunities, that stuff rarely hits. I mean, even when something like Protein Hulk hits, you've got all these... Um, you know, other things sitting around that never get there. And so I, I consider them to be high risk. I try to make less than 10% of my portfolio, uh, allow it to be comprised of those kind of specs. And if there's an opportunity to get out at, say, 60 cents buy list and I put in a dollar, and I think I've got something that I can double up, that's one of the other things you've got to consider. It's an opportunity cost calculation. So one of the things I look at is... Uh, my liquidity versus card um, assets. So if I've got $1,000 in my PayPal account and I want to make a play on something and I want to go $1,000 deep, then I'm probably not going to go dig through failed specs to try to fund that transaction. I'm going to use the capital that's at hand. But if I then drain that account and now I've got zero and for some reason I have a slow month selling and I don't have any additional capital coming in and my whole deal here with MGG Finance now is that it's self-funded. So like one of the things that's exciting about my portfolio is I'm not putting racking up credit card debt. In fact, I'm moving in the other direction. Um, by the end of this year, I should have zero debt total in my life. Um, oh. and Aside from that child. <laughs> well, I mean, the Canadian government pays for my child for the most part, um, which I'm sure nobody in the US wants to hear. Um, the, but I mean, so I'm, I'm going to look at the opportunity, uh, that's in front of me. And I think that it represents a much better return than leaving those failed specs sitting around or buy listing them, because that's always an option. If a card is, you know, has fallen back from a plateau, but still has a relatively strong demand pattern, then that's where your buy lists are going to be significantly closer to retail when a card is particularly obscure and there's a lot of it around that's where you're going to get destroyed on buy list um but sometimes it doesn't matter if you bought a car if you bought you know 500 copies of a card at a dollar and you can get out at 75 cents and you think you can flip that into a small pile of masterpiece soul rings that you think you're going to go up 60 to 80 dollars a copy that's going to make you whole again and then some and so if capital, if the only assets you have at your disposal will, disposal aren't liquid, they are cards, you want to look at the cards who that you can out the easiest, probably through buy lists, because when you're trying to unload 100 copies of a failed spec to anything but a buy list, I think you're going to have a, a, a time problem um, get, getting your hands on the capital, right? But if you can, you want to go through your box and pick out the things where you can get whole again the easiest through known buy listing and there's buy listing tools on quiet speculation on mtg price um, and elsewhere that will help you figure that out and you know that's where you want to source the capital from on the assumption that you think that you've got a sure thing or as close to a sure thing as possible on the other end of that transaction and as you said earlier it doesn't matter how far down the chain you are like for instance right now i'm sitting on a stack of like maybe 15 or 20 dark confidants that are I'm up like $4 in theory on this, you know, per card in this stack. Well, I'm very close to just going ahead and selling them at retail and or buy listing them because I've got other things that I think are going to do a lot better um, than I think Dark Confidant 
confidant is in the current modern context. Um, and there's a pretty good chance it sees another reprint in the next couple of years. And I don't really want to be left holding this card when that moment rolls around. Um, and as such, given that I have great opportunities in Europe that, are, you know, across 50, 60, 70 different cards are doing much better than I expected our confidants to do. And it's a popular card that I can still, you know, unload relatively simply and at reasonable value close to what I paid. Um, it's almost certainly the right move to get out of that card and move on. Sure, sure. I mean, in that case, in that case, it is because like you're not you're cutting your losses, but you're cutting them in the sense that like you're not getting hammered. You're just you're you're making you're getting out at the same price that you bought in. So it doesn't feel I guess it doesn't feel as bad. I mean, it doesn't change the equation necessarily. It just changes how bad it feels. Uh, you know, I would consider that the amount of effort it takes to get rid of them after you fail matters, too. Um you know, if I bought in at a card at 50 cents or whatever, and now it's, I missed and it's dropped and the buy list is like 10 cents, like the effort involved is selling them. It's just, it, it's not there. It's not worth getting rid of them is, is the problem. This is what I talk about. Like I hold the smaller cheap stuff because I just don't, I just don't care. It doesn't put enough money in my pocket, back in my pocket to be meaningful. Um, and I can always sell again, you know, six years from now, if I decide to just junk it all, um, I'm going to get the same amount back then as I did today. So it doesn't really do that much for me. It's the bigger stuff where you have more money wrapped up in that you're like okay well am i getting rid of this or not like that's where it starts to matter because that influences your your total volume your, your total capital available um you can lose you stand to lose a lot more too possibly like those girl with the burn wheels i've still got that i should probably probably go reduce because uh, like i could lose another 20 dollars a piece on those if i'm not careful so yeah i I'm, so i i don't know i guess that's i think this is a pretty good discussion of the topic um I mean, one of the things that one of the things people say all the time, right, is that you should get out a standard before things rotate. But I think that when you're this late in the season, um, you have to think twice. The highest demand cards in standard right now, which is going to be mono red staples at the current at current juncture, yeah, go ahead and get out of those because you <laughs> the, the fact that you're getting anything on your Falcon Wrath Gorgers is is good. And if you can walk into your LGS and get twenty or thirty bucks store credit or forty bucks store credit on some of that stuff that was just sitting around in your standard binder, then power to you. But don't unload everything from standard just because you're you're panicked that it's going to drop down. Because what's going to end up happening is you're going to get fair market value for a bunch of the staple stuff that has been like mediocre demand that's about to rotate. But you're going to end up giving them like a foil Zendikar resurgent or something that's going to end up being a $50 card a couple of years down the road. And you're not even going to remember that you did it, but you're going to be like for the 30 or $40 that you picked up, you're going to be out 50 or 100 on some random stuff that you didn't even realize had a future. Um, holding on to magic cards for long periods of time has made almost every, and I think this is true of many of us that have been in the game a long time, has made almost every box that we bought prior to say return to Ravnica essentially free. Uh, yeah, I don't think that that's, uh, an unfair way to think about it. I remember I bought two rise of the Eldrazi boxes, which felt like felt terrible at the time. Uh, and I remember distinctly remember complaining because I got multiple, uh, I in there. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's another good example for me, actually. I, I have Ugin Expeditions was one of my most spectacular failures in the last few years in, where I literally just screwed myself over from, uh, you know, the sin of sloth by not selling them when they were hot, um, buying into them at like 200 to 240 for the Expeditions. And they're now worth something like $60. So 
there there's no pressure on that card to get anywhere near back to 200 or 240 like maybe they can climb back up to 80 or 100 if i see inventory dropping but inventory has been relatively stable which suggests relatively low demand because legacy players if they need them will probably already have them and may not be that interested in the expedition version instead of the pack foil so in that case i've got six or seven of those sitting around it's time to just go ahead and unload those um, that's probably you know going out in the same order as the dark confidants because yeah it's a it's a total failure but it, it 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 one of the things is you can't take any of this stuff personally like sure something you you specced on didn't work out but keep in mind that as in the stock market many of the variables are far beyond your control like even when we're giving advice and we're doing our very best to give great advice it will never be perfect there will always be mistakes to, for us to have a hit ratio of anywhere from say 40 to 50 percent of specs recommended would be incredible and would be much better than anything you get in the stock market from so-called pundits because there's just too many factors in play. There are macroeconomic factors, microeconomic factors affecting the stock market. In the magic world, there are there's less going on, but format swings and what new cards get reprinted represent variables that are far, far beyond your control. So there's no point in taking any of it personally. You just need to see if you can learn from that you know, particular failure, what you can glean from it and reuse it later to make more money or save more money down the road. Right. You know, I'm fond of... Uh... There was one card in particular that I it, I'm drawing a blank on it right now, but you know I always point out like look these these cards that we talk about like Eidolon of Blossoms I think was a good one like this is it really was a great spec like Journey in the Nyx was barely printed it was this huge enabler for the enchantment like it just the spec really made sense and then just the way the metagame shook out it just wasn't good so it's also you shouldn't feel bad about this stuff because some of your some of your specs are just bad. The guys buying foil, COP greens, they're bad. But at the same time, you're like, okay, well, there was this awesome card in standard that might have dominated a different standard, but it turns out everybody got on the abrade train and never got off of it, which made my god pharaohs bad. Um, isn't you don't have to be about that because like you can't know what the standard metagame was going to look like. If you did, you'd win every pro tour, right? So sometimes you just you have what looks like an awesome spec and things don't shake out the way you want them to, and you know you don't need to feel terrible about that either. Yeah, and I, mean, I think one of the other pieces of advice worth taking into consideration is test formats. Like you can get it way out ahead of this stuff by being deeply entrenched in the competitive community having a playtest group that cares about uh, identifying trends ahead of time and being on top of things in the formats that you choose to focus on whether it's standard or modern or legacy or whatever and when new cards come down the the path have a regularly scheduled meeting where you're mocking up cards like they do over on star city and a channel fireball and you're testing the shit out of those cards to try to figure out what the meta is going to look like and you're still going to get lots of it wrong but there are plenty of pros that were showing off photos of grips full of champion of wits because they were testing that card and realized that it was busted. Yeah. Yeah. That happens every now and then I think, uh, which we call it walking ballista did the same thing. Like people were actually tested the card and were like, Holy shit, this thing's ridiculous. And then they bought a ton of them. Yeah. And I haven't been playing a lot of standard lately. I just had a kid. Um, and so I missed champion wits completely. I took a, took a look at it on the list and Brett, you know breezed right on by and that's one of the the cool things about mgg finance is that the better the player you are the better you'll be at the speculation side um you know focusing if you've only got time to play one format then make that format your mtg finance niche because you're going to be better at it i mean uh, jason alt carved out his edh staked his claim in edh finance like years ahead of everybody else and now it's you know paying off because he's he's much more deeply ingrained in that in that format than other people are 
Um, and while they're fucking around buying crappy reserve list cards, he's making money. I hope <laughs> I don't actually know what's in Jason's portfolio, but I hope that he follows his own advice and that he's, you know, knee deep in, in ducats. Jason's portfolio is uh, 80% jokes about duck. <laughs> the other 20% are jokes about Corbin. Um, all right. Any last thoughts before we uh, leave our listeners for the week, James? Yeah. Contrary to what other podcasts may insinuate, um, Europe is still an excellent <laughs> fucking opportunity. And, I don't think that that was and, the insinuation. <laughs> uh, it, whether it was intentional or not, the um, Europe is still a thing, folks. Brazil is a thing. South Asia is a thing. Uh, look into this stuff. Make friends. Join forums. Um, talk to people on Facebook. Get your hands linked with other hands around the world and figure out how to make arbitrage work to your advantage. Um, it is, I just got another package in from Europe this week that is pretty exciting. Something like $2,400 worth of cards where market street value is somewhere between 4000 and 4400 Got another one coming in next week. All this stuff was self-financed by packages that came in four to six months ago from the same process. Um, there are very nice people out there that will be happy to help you out if you help them. Um, and it will definitely improve your process. Okay. Well, all excellent insight. And James, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me as per usual on MTG on Twitter at MTG critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. Okay. And I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at wizard bumpin, B U M P I N. You can find my articles on MTG price every Monday. And as I also do the, uh, cartel aristocrats, podcast on mondays uh and if you like playing magic check out scry.land to find magic in your area i'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just 4.99 a month or 49.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mtg finance minds in the business and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. I might also like to point out a couple things about MTG Price right now that are not so fantastic. One, Hour of Devastation cards are not showing up in the scans. This is part of our ongoing quest to slay a bunch of bugs this summer. Um, I apologize for that inconvenience. We should have that fixed uh, within the week. Um, uh, number two, I've heard numerous reports lately of people uh, signing up for tr Pro Trader that have listened to this podcast and then not been able to get into the forums because their login didn't work. If that becomes a problem for you, feel free to ping me on Twitter and I will get you sorted out lickety split. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 79. I thought we had another great episode, James. Thanks for joining me. Uh, safe travels and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank <laughs> you.